Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life. Men without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. There we go. Ah. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Good to see you all. Those of you that were away for a bit, welcome back. Hope you had a good break. And uh, yeah, let's climb into the Psalms. We are starting with uh, just a few Psalms again, and then as the term goes, we'll go into a few other things and series that we'll take a look at. But we're just going to pick up where we've left off in the ongoing Psalm series that we've been doing on and off. Uh, it will be probably another five to six years probably before we finish the Psalms. I don't know if we're lucky. No rush, no. <laughs> but the Psalms are beautiful uh, because it, it allows us to do that in one sense, to climb into it kind of whenever we want to. It's there for worship, for contemplation, for just stirring us to think a little bit deeper perhaps about how we worship, our own lives, all sorts of things. So as we turn to Psalm 54 this morning, um, before we get underway, uh, JJ has already read it for us. Maybe you've got a bit of a feeling of what's happening. I just want to highlight there's two sections to this uh, psalm. Some of the texts may have Selah in the middle, uh, which will actually break the psalm quite nicely and you feel there's a change in the psalm. So verses 1 to 3 is the first half of the psalm. And the second half is verse 4 down to 7. So I don't know if your Bibles have that, uh, but yeah, between those two, there's a bit of a break, which is important for us because it's a change in the actual tone of the psalm itself. And hopefully you pick that up. So the first section, I'm just going to read again. It says, save me, O God, by your name, vindicate me by your might, hear my prayer, O God, listen to the words of of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. First section, there is a person, and we're going to get into that now. now. There is a person that is afflicted. They are surrounded by an enemy. They're arrogant, uh, and he is crying out for God to save. Verse 4, it carries on, and hear the change in the tone of the psalm. Surely God is my helper. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. So it goes from quite a negative side to a positive affirmation of who God is. Um, so not just a cry, but a certainty that God will save. 
And so I hope you can just get a feel for that. It's important for us to just feel the psalm. We need to experience it and hear it, hear the emotion, hear the flow of it. It's all important. But now in order for us to maybe understand this a little bit further, there's an important part of the text that we unfortunately did leave out. Um, and I had to learn this lesson, and it's an important one for us to remember, uh, is with a psalm, you often get little headings. Um, and that is not a print given by the Bible, uh, trans- the Bible translation that we have. That is actual text. That is actually biblically written in the original Hebrew language. So in this context, we have a little refrain, little phrase uh, that's up at the top there. It says, for the director of music, it tells us, uh, how it was most likely used it was used for music with stringed instruments, uh, a miskal, which was probably a style in which it was played in, um, of David. So this is associated with David. Important for us to pick that up. Immediately when you hear David's name, a whole host of thoughts come to mind. You think king of Israel. You think of what he did, what he didn't do, what he should have done. You think of his hardships that he faced in life. Those things must run through our mind as we see his name. And so not to dig up the series that we did in the past, but we have to go there, is 1 Samuel. We covered the whole of 1 Samuel over, what was it, two, was it two years or so. We looked at it in sections. And hopefully with that in mind, you will remember what has happened in David's life. Certain events, certain circumstances. So now maybe before you've even read the psalm, you wonder, well, when would David have possibly have said this? When and why would David have written a psalm perhaps like this? Or why would a psalm like this be ascribed to David? Well, it highlights a certain time in his life. And this is what makes this psalm quite beautiful, is it gives us a very specific time uh, in his life. Notice what it says in the next part of that first line. When the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, is not David hiding among us? Okay, so this tells us not only it was David, but it tells when in his life it was. So first of all, you see another name that's important that triggers a bunch of thoughts. You think of Saul what Saul was doing, and often when there is other people, other tribes, other nations mentioned, we know that it is likely that David was fleeing. He was fleeing for his life in this context. He ran off uh, to the territory in which the Ziphites were located, um, and he was ratted out. Um, If ever there was a place that you don't want to go and hide, it would be there because they will rat you out. And that's what happened to David. Uh, He went there. And if you want to go and flip back, I'll just highlight this. You don't have to go there, but I'll just read uh, two sections. It was 1 Samuel 23, uh, picking up there in verse, say, verse uh, 14. Oh, no, let's go with verse 19. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hekila, south of Jeshimon? Uh, and now what's important about that is there we have the proof in 1 Samuel that here the, the Ziphites, they go and rat David out to Saul. And what follows whenever Saul is informed about David, off Saul goes and he wants to now kill David. So, 
The other account that we can look at, you don't have to go there again, but is 1 Samuel 26. The first verse there is the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hekilah, which faces Jeshimon? So it's just the kind of book ends, those two, the, the event of uh, what is happening as Saul comes to kill uh, David. So very interesting as we look at this passage. When David then says, now that gives us just a little bit of context to play around with, because otherwise it feels too detached perhaps for us. What is the salvation that David is crying out for? Why must he be vindicated? Well, let's look there. He says, save me, O God, by your name, vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God, listen to the words of my mouth. He is crying out to God because he is fleeing for his life, because the king of Israel, the current king of Israel, is Hunting him down. He wants to kill him. Saul is set on destroying David. Set on destroying David because David is set to be the true king of Israel. Appointed and anointed by God. While Saul was the one that was demanded if we recall. And here the one that was demanded for is wanting to kill uh, kill David. And so David cries out to God in his desperation to be saved, to be saved from the hand of Saul. Not only that, but verse 3 perhaps shows us a little bit more of what he's crying out for. Arrogant foes, in verse 3, are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. So he is highlighting the fact that there is most likely not only the enemy of Saul that is coming after him, but also that of the Ziphites, those that are betraying uh, him and ratting him out, along with the fact that these people that are doing it have no regard for the Lord God. These people that are set on killing David, the son of God, the anointed king, they are directly opposed to God. And that we kind of see through Scripture. How if you are opposed to God's chosen one, you are opposed to God himself. And here we have David crying out, Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. He is calling out for salvation. Just to pause there, I don't think many of us have been in a circumstance like this. uh, Crying out in this way where we are fleeing for our lives for someone that wants to destroy us because we are perhaps chosen, righteous, the one that God has set aside. I mean, this is quite a complicated psalm for us to relate to. Because for me, personally, if I look at it, I think I, I can't pinpoint things in my life that makes this actually relatable. But David, for us, he is relatable. When we look at David, he is the king. He is God's chosen one. And he is crying out for salvation. Now, we can look at it from a slightly different angle. Either we are the one that's ratting him out, or we are the one that will stand beside him and stand for him in some ways. And therefore, if we are in opposition to God's chosen one, we are therefore in opposition to God. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Listen to the next section now, obviously keeping in mind uh, what 
what David is now saying as the tone changes. Surely God is my helper. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Uh, there is perhaps another way of reading this, uh, and the CSB kind of captures it slightly differently um, as you kind of try and reinterpret the Hebrew there. It says, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life, or those he sustains the life of those that look out for me or are for me. So there's a flip to it. There's kind of two sides to it. Either it can simply mean God will protect me, and he's the one that sustains me. Or God will sustain the lives of those that look after my life as the anointed one. Which is very interesting if it has that level of ambiguity in how you read it. It actually gives us a suggestion to what this king and his role actually looks like. And what happens to those that serve him or don't serve him. If you don't serve the king, this king is going to call upon God's name for vindication against you. But if you do serve this king, God will also sustain you. He will look after you. You will prosper in his care as you serve this king. Interesting. And then he says in verse six, uh, in verse 5, Let evil recoil, recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. So this helps us to kind of see the, the, the contrast, the juxtaposition of the two. Either you are for him, or you are against him. And here, perhaps it gives us grounds to say, either, either God is going to sustain those that sustain me, or he's going to let evil recoil on those who slander me. That's quite a strong, strong um, kind of picture that you get. Listen to those words. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. I think it's actually very well put. It's not suggesting that God will do evil, but that God will allow their evil to hit them back in the face, if I can put it that bluntly. <laughs> it will recoil on them. Their own evil will be the thing that recoils on them. And in your faithfulness, destroy them. Meaning, put an end to, to their wickedness, to what they are doing. Amazing. Then verse 6 and 7 is kind of the response from that reality as, as David declares this. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Now, either this is in light of the fact that God has now already saved him from the circumstance, which is a possibility that this break shows that there has been a shift because God has now saved him. But it is most likely, as the psalmist often would do, a reflective declaration of God's faithfulness. The psalmist recalls that he has seen and witnessed God's hand, uh, hand of salvation and triumph over his foes. But even if it's not that, we still see that God has triumphed. And the response that David gives is that he will sacrifice a free will offering. For us, again, it's difficult because when last did you perform a, a free will sacrifice offering? Anyone? No? No? No one? Okay, sure. Uh, today, go and think about it when you light the fire to braai. Maybe you can do it there. But... It, Essentially what it is, it is a response, and this is why I say when you go and light a fire and have a bri, it is a response to God's faithfulness 
that you will sacrifice an animal followed by a feast. Uh, generally a celebration of what God has done. So after you've bride and you're eating your meat, celebrate God's faithfulness. <laughs> it's not quite the same thing. But all I'm saying is when you look at this, this is the response. He is not obligated to. It is a heart response that compels him to want to celebrate, to actually throw a party in thanks for who God is and what God has done. Interesting. Amazing. So let's pause there. That's something that we can relate to. When last has God really transformed or impacted your life in a way that you wanted to throw a party? Anyone? No? We need to be celebrating far more often as Christians the goodness of our Lord and Savior and what he has done for us. Perhaps what we should have done, what was it, last week? Maybe now, I'm trying to think, last week, over Easter. Perhaps what we should have done is thrown one big party in celebration of Christ's resurrection from the grave and declaring that and celebrating that with one another. Unfortunately, we only do that at his birth, Christmas. We'll have a feast together. But not in his resurrection. To sit together in, in celebration as we are now, 2,000 years later, still declaring how he has saved us. We need to be celebrating. That is the heart of the free will offering. It is not an offering of atonement. It is not an obligation. It is a thankfulness. It is a response to God's goodness. This is where the psalmist gets to. He cries out for salvation as the future king of Israel, the already anointed one by God. He cries out and he knows that God is faithful. God saves him and he celebrates. He rejoices. He gives thanks with all of his life. So again, difficult psalm because there's some weird things happening here. But how does this apply to us? Well, David, and I said right in the beginning, when you see David's name, it stands out for us because we have a picture of David in our mind of what he did. But David is also a link for us to who he represents. David, David is a Messiah figure for us. So when we see David and we hear these words, we should also then begin to see Jesus and his words and his actions and his deeds. I mean, it's so remarkable coming out of Easter, what we've declared. I mean, just seeing how different Jesus' language is to David's language. David cries out, save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Nothing wrong with that. Genuine. But Jesus' words, as he is suffering at the hand of his enemy, is forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. That's Jesus' response. He goes the extra mile. He doesn't call for salvation for himself, but for the very ones that are persecuting him. 
Jesus doesn't look at the arrogant foes that are attacking him and killing him and think, God will deal with you. He, on the cross, says, I am dealing with you. If you believe in me, I will deal with you in the best way possible. But if you are against me, you are against my Father. That is the danger for us today still. As we read this psalm, we are either for the King or against the King. We are either for Christ or against Christ. Our evil will either recoil and hit us. Or if we repent of our evil, come to the Father through the Son, He will sustain us. He will give us life. And that leaves us with those last two verses in light of Jesus Christ. And as I said, we need to be celebrating more often what the Lord has done for us. Let us sacrifice a free will offering, a praise, a declaration of who the Lord is. Not once a year, not at weird times of the year, but all the time. Our lives should be exuding celebration of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Listening to the testimonies and singing the songs that we sing should show and shine so brightly of who Jesus Christ is that when people hear it, it it bubbles up in them and makes everybody want to sing and declare as we sang and declared. Listen to these words that Paul gives us in Romans 12. And I'm just going to read the first section, but this is what Paul kind of highlights in light of God's mercy. Kind of see the pictures tying together from Psalm 54 to what, what Paul has to say in Romans 12. Just looking at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, not listen, I urge you, I I want to shake you by the shoulders and show you how important this is. In view of God's mercy, listen to what he says. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is not an obligation. This is not a necessity. This is a response. When you recognize who Jesus Christ is, what he has done for you, this is how we want to respond. That our whole lives are living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. A sweet aroma. This is true worship. So as we engage with one another around coffee, as we go out into the week, how are you 
going to live lives that are in, can we use the phrase, sacrificial worship. A free will offering in all of your life, in everything that you do, joyfully declaring that Jesus Christ has saved. He has rescued you. He has extended his hand out to you to transform you from that of being arrogant and wicked and evil and sinful, destined to have that all recoiling upon yourself, to saying, come, come to me and my Father will sustain you. He will carry you. He will give you life. He will give you freedom. Love for me. Praise me. Rejoice in me. Celebrate it. I suppose why feast, followed by a feast, is so important. Because there's a sense of experience that is actually necessary. I mean, it's such a great thing when you have a good meal together with someone that you care about. They're just The whole moment is just so good. You want to try and bottle that experience. Imagine we could bottle that experience of, you know, that first moment that you realized who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. And just keep going back and every time you just get a, a whiff of it or a experience of it so that you can celebrate again and again and again and again and again and again. And that's why we need to declare to one another our stories as we did this morning and sing songs together. Because that reminds us, it brings us back to God's salvation for us. It brings us back to why we celebrate. And it stirs us, it moves us, it fills us with a lightness and a joy that we can't bottle and we can't keep quiet. We don't want to keep it closed. We want to express it. We want to tell it to people. So this morning I want to encourage you, and really I want to encourage you, to celebrate Jesus. Celebrate with one another the joy of being able to be here. I mean, just before we finish, take a look around at one another. I, I always love to do that, and it's kind of helpful. But take a look around and think, when else would you ever be in a room with all of these people? If you had the freedom to choose outside of church to sit in a room with all of these people, when would you do that? And when would you love them as you're called to love them? Love one another. Celebrate with one another. Enjoy one another. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves. You are not only a God who saves those that are deserving, but you are a God that extends to those that are undeserving, which in actual fact is all of us, Father. Thank you that on the cross, as, as you hung there, Jesus Christ, that you recognized our inability to comprehend and understand the full depth of who you are. And you could declare, in the face of murdering 
punishing, difficult circumstance of people that were ridiculing and mocking and slandering you, you could say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. We don't deserve that. If we are anything but even a, a fraction of what happened on that day. You rescued us despite that. Despite the things that are going on in our heads and our hearts right now, you are able to set us free from that. To restore us, not to what we once were, not to what we were in our prime, but what you intended us to be. Maybe we don't see that right now, but Father, we know that when you call us home, you will create in us a new life, new being. We will be perfected in the image of your Son. We thank you, and I pray that we may celebrate every moment of every day And even when we don't feel like it, even when we're not convinced of it, Father, I pray that we may remind one another then, encourage one another. This is a worthy thing of celebrating. If there was anything worth celebrating, we're so quick to want to celebrate. We want to celebrate every small achievement and every birthday and every every moment. It's not a bad thing. We desire to celebrate, but help us to want to celebrate you even more. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.